Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts and kindness Humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, so also you must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. All right. So some of that may sound familiar. Uh, we have tackled portions of that text in, in recent weeks. But I, I wanted to look at the larger picture, kind of zoom out a bit. That's why I'm making such a large portion of text this morning. This, uh, this comes to us against the backdrop of Paul telling us to be careful and not submit to earthly regulations. You remember that from last week. We looked at the end of chapter 2. Paul said in chapter 2, verse 20, If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world... Why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? And he gives us some examples. Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. And then, just a few verses before that, in verse 16, he says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food or drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. And in, and in verse 18, Chapter 2, let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. So we have this, this whole section where Paul is making the point and he's saying, Hey guys, it's not about the rules. It's not about rule keeping. Rules don't save you. Christ saves you. Rule keeping doesn't make you righteous. Faith in Christ makes you righteous. When we put our faith in the ability and our own ability to, to keep the rules and to toe the line, 
What we do is we deny the cross of its purpose and we deny Christ of His power. So at the end of chapter 2, it's not about the rules. And then we come to chapter 3 in our text this morning, and it seems like Paul is going on about the rules. Put to death these things. Put away these things. Put on these things. In fact, I count 11 things that that Paul tells us we have to put away, put to death. Uh, Literally translated is to utterly stop. He says you must utterly stop them, put them to death because, verse 6, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So, on the one hand, it's not about the rules, guys. And then, here are a bunch of rules that you better follow because the wrath of God is coming on those who don't. So I don't, I don't know about you, um, but that creates some tension in my mind. Um, it unsettles the neat little categories that I put everything in in my head. Am I the only one? Okay, good. Good. So maybe this will be fruitful this morning. My purpose this morning is, is twofold. I want to try to get at the question and answer the question, what is the goal then? What is our aim? Specifically, what I mean by that is, what are we to understand and receive from Paul's instruction, both in chapter 2 and and in chapter 3, when it seems on its surface that there might be a contradiction, that he may be laying on us a heavy burden or even an impossible burden? Don't worry about the rules. Here are the rules. I mean, this has got what? I don't get it. So I, I hope to show you that Paul is talking about two different matters altogether. There's matters outside, and then there's matters inside. We could say external matters and the matters of the heart. And then secondly, what I hope to do is to answer the question how we are to do what Paul is instructing us to do. Don't worry about the rules. Here are the rules. And when I say how we're to do this, I'm talking about two things. The, I'm talking about the method, you know, the, 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 how we obey in practice. And I'm talking about the means, the, the fuel, the power, the, the batteries that enable us to be obedient, to work out this practice. So a, a, a few months ago, just by way of illustration, I, I gave my, uh, my, my oldest daughter uh, decided that she wanted to go to Lynchburg, Virginia, from Jackson, Tennessee, to visit the boy. And she, she knew that this was going to be a problem for her dad to agree to, so she made a PowerPoint presentation and, and <laughs> did all the things where she presented us the reasons why we should let her go and why it was a good idea and why she would be okay, all the good stuff. I mean, she literally did a PowerPoint. It was crazy. Um, I, I was a little more than apprehensive about this. She's, she's never made this drive before. It's a nine-hour drive. She's never driven anywhere by herself for that long before. And so I was a little um, apprehensive about it. But part of being a parent is guiding children 
into adulthood, certainly. But then you got to let them <laughs> be adults, right? Amen. Oh, that's the hard part. That's the hard part. Letting go, uh, you know, cutting that cord a little bit and a little bit. You know, we don't want to sever it, you know, like a Band-Aid, rip it off. We want to just a little, here's a little, here's a little, you know. we got to let them do adult things little by little. So I, I can give her all the instruction in the world. But if I never allow her to put it into practice, then I end up limiting her growth, Amen. right? Amen. I end up keeping her from developing the wisdom and the skills that she needs to make it, to, to do the journey, right? And so I, I agreed that Brianna would be able to go from Jackson, Tennessee to Lynchburg, Virginia in our little Nissan Juke. And so before her trip, I sat down and I, I planned out her route for her. And I showed her. I showed her. I gave her directions on precisely how to get from her dorm to his dorm to visit the boy. But not only did I do that, I planned her stops along the way. I, I strategically located gas stations along the way for her to stop at to ensure that she would always be able to have enough fuel to keep her going and that she wouldn't run out of gas in the middle of nowhere because she either didn't know that, we, that it's going to be 300 miles till we get to the next gas station or she just didn't think to fill up. So I made sure here's where you stop and here's what you do when you get there. You put gas in the car. I don't care if it says you have half a tank left. You fill up. Fill it up. Get the fuel in the car to get you where you've got to go. So I, I gave her the method. I showed her where she's going, how to get there, all the directions. And I provided her the means. I showed her where to get what she needs to make the journey. Amen. So that's my, my two goals this morning. What is our aim? What are Paul's instructions to us? What are we to take from that? And how are we to do it? So let's, let's start with our aim, our goal. Before we can move into the how, we need to consider the what. Right? Okay. So we are warned at the end of chapter 2 not to be legalistic. That's, that's the whole point there, Paul. said, so don't, don't, don't put... That's why I made it the point to tell you this morning. We're not putting legal demands on you about eating Mexican food. We're not putting legal demands on you about going to see a movie. That, that's, not it. that's not the point. We encourage you, but that's not a legal demand. It's not a condition of your salvation, nor is it a condition of membership in the church. Pharisees, however, were legalistic. If you remember from last week, Jesus was very critical of them in Mark 7, saying that with their lips they praise Him, but with their hearts they're far from Him. Amen. So they, they had a bunch of rules to, and, and things that they had to do and things that they had to keep. They had a bunch of rules, which in the, the rules accomplished two purposes. Number one, it was to puff themselves up to say, see how righteous I am. And number two, it was to condemn others when they didn't follow the same rules to say, see how wicked you are. 
Paul says that these uh, little do not eat rules, do not drink rules, do not touch rules, that's what those things are. All of these kind of rules, they make up a system that is separate from faith in Jesus Christ, that is separate from any kind of work of the Holy Spirit in a person's life. And that's why Paul uh, argues in chapter 2, verse 23, these have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So his rules are, I mean, they look wise, but they don't. They're not salvific. They're not righteousness producing. So just for clarity's sake, I want to list for you the rules that Paul had a problem with. We find them in, in chapter 2, verse 16. He said, questions of food or drink. And rules about festivals. Rules about new moons. And, and presumably what he, what he means by festivals and, and new moons is how or whether people observe festivals and new moons. And he says rules about Sabbaths. Now, to be honest, there was a, some question about, there was some debate about Sabbaths. The Jewish Sabbath is on Saturday. The Christian Sabbath is on Sunday. There, there are a number of reasons for this. They're both biblical reasons, historical reasons, and theological reasons. I don't have time to get into them all right now, but I, I just suffice it to say that there are, are good reasons why the... Jews observe the Sabbath on the last day of the week. We observe the Lord's Day on, on the first day of the week. Not the least of which is that Saturday, the last day of the week, marks God's rest from creation. And Sunday marks the Master's rest of redemption. Redemption is the greater work. Redemption is a greater work than creation. Okay, so food, drink, festivals, new moon, Sabbath, that's all verse 16. Verse 18, we have the qualifying rules. Real Christians really do these things. They insist on asceticism. <clears throat> You've got a King James Version. Your translation probably says voluntary humility. <clears throat> that doesn't sound so bad, does it, King James? Paul says don't, don't be held captive when they insist on voluntary humility. Um, I mean, in fact, the Bible tells us that we are to humble ourselves, right? So this is why uh, language matters and, and understanding of language matters. Words matter. Culturally speaking, the, the general idea here, when Paul says voluntary humanity or humility, the general idea here is about extreme practices that look like they're noble, but they're not required by God, like a vow of silence or prolonged fasting or a lifelong poverty. You know, no matter how much money I make, I'm just give it all away. Extreme denial of the self from all of the pleasures of life, thinking that that makes you holy. So, for example, it's, it's not wrong to fast. In fact, the Bible calls us to fast. We're supposed to fast from time to time. But it is wrong for me to say that my fast is more holy and I am more spiritual and more righteous because I fast three days a week and you only fast once a month. Or, or whatever. You can clearly tell I do not fast three days a week. <laughs> but that's, a, that's, a, that's an undue legal burden. That's legalism speaking. That's what Paul's getting at. Don't, don't worry about that kind of... That's a, that's a rule-keeping kind of religion. Paul is working to refute 
the heretical Gnosticism that was very prevalent in the day, a very early heresy that confronted Christians. What Gnosticism taught was that the body by nature is evil. And so all physical desires needed to be squelched. So if I was hungry, I needed to starve myself. If I was thirsty, I needed to go without water. If I wanted companionship, I needed to put myself in an isolated room because I couldn't enjoy anything. Because anything the body enjoys is wicked. That's the, the heresy of Gnosticism. Clearly heretical. The Bible clearly says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Why do Psalms use so many descriptive words about, you know, honey? Your word is sweeter than the honeycomb. I mean, those are physical sensations that we're using to relate to a spiritual God. So not all that the body wants is bad. It's good for us. I mean, why why does the Lord use feasts in order to honor Him, for goodness sakes? So he's coming against Gnosticism. So Paul says that kind of external, appearance-based humility is not what God wants. And then you see he talks about worshiping of angels. You know, don't if people insist on asceticism or worshiping of angels. You know, Jesus taught that we are to worship God alone, right? Matthew 4.10. But in, in Paul's day, many of the false teachers taught that, and this was a result of their of paganism and all the stuff that came in from outside the you know, just trying to mix things together and make it feel more comfortable. But a lot of the false teachers taught that mysticism and philosophy were the keys to knowledge. Spiritual visions, things that would come to you from angels, those were a key part of knowing the truth. In other words, things that can't be known because they, they have to be experienced from some sort of outside the, the, the realm of, of, uh, of what we have given to us in the re- revealed Word of God. Extra revelation. You know, that, that, and Paul states that's not true. That, that's not the key to knowledge. And we have that kind of heresy even today. People insist that there have to be some kind of extra revelation apart from the Scriptures. You know, you're, you're, not, you're not truly walking by the Spirit unless you get regular messages from God about little things like what you ought to eat for breakfast. I'm not going to tell you that the Lord won't impress upon you. You shouldn't have that third donut um, for breakfast. But that is not a requirement for being a Christian, (laughs) that you hear from the Lord about what you eat for breakfast, that you have visions, that you have this mystical relationship. That's not a burden that Jesus or any part of the Scripture places on believers. Finally, we talk about mystical visions. Paul mentions that. It's interesting because visions themselves are not what Paul has a problem with. Paul had visions. He has personal experience with visions. What Paul is rejecting is the use of visions as a way to attract attention to myself. As a way to set myself up as some kind of authority. I spent longer on that than I intended to. So I just wanted to make sure that we understood one thing about all of these rules. Keeping these rules requires no spiritual work of the Holy Spirit, no faith in Christ, and no change in our hearts. More to the point, none of these things are requirements from God in regard to holiness. Do you see that? So let, let me just try to sweep all that with a big broad brush from... 
smallest to largest, uh, from the least mystical to the most mystical. Paul starts with matters of food and drink, right? So I am not an alcohol drinker. I don't, I don't drink alcohol. It's never been a problem for me. It is not now and it never has been a temptation for me. So my lack of interest in drinking alcohol does not make me more righteous than someone who has to be very careful around it. I'm not beset by that, but that doesn't mean that I am more righteous than the person who does struggle with that. My ability to abstain from alcohol isn't some kind of mark of increased spirituality or importance in the kingdom of God. And it's not a Christian thing not to drink. I know a lot of non-believers who don't drink alcohol. That doesn't make them Christian. Okay, let's move to the, now from this, the least mystical of them to the most mystical. Paul talks about visions, right? Visions are real. We have biblical evidence of visions. Visions are not a condition for salvation, though, nor are they a requirement of God. And let me say this. Let me blow your minds here. Visions are not exclusively Christian either. You don't believe me? Talk to any drug addict who's ever been hopped up on hallucinogens. We can manufacture visions. They are not a condition of salvation. They are not a requirement of God. It's not difficult to produce that kind of thing. All these things are external matters. They're outside the cup, right? Do you remember what Jesus said to the Pharisees when he was pronouncing the woes to them in Matthew 25? He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, for you clean the outside of the cup, but the inside is full of greed and selfish indulgence. So God God isn't looking for how well you produce an outward show. God is looking for a fully surrendered heart, an inward transformation. So back to what Jesus said, clean the inside of the cup so that the outside may also be clean. So when we get to chapter 3 here in Colossians, and Paul says he gives us this list of things to put away then or to utterly stop, That's where he's aiming. He's aiming at the inside of the cup. And therein lies the difference. He's talking matters of the heart. This is not lip service, which all those other things can be. The ones we just talked about, you know, food and drink and Sabbaths and and festivals and visions and all that other stuff. That can be lip service. Paul is talking about matters of the heart. Just to list them for you, uh, verse 5, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire. Those are all come out of the heart. Covetousness comes out of the heart. And then in verse 8, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, not lying in verse 9. So uh, there's like 11 of them, I think, things we must put away. And here's what I want to simply say. Like I said, they're all matters of the heart. Matters of root, what's in the heart. So how do we reconcile this list with the first list? The first list is outside the cup. List of regulations. It consists of a bunch of do's and don'ts. The outward show. The second list in chapter 3 
has to do with character. Not the outward show, but the inward reality of the Christian heart. Do you remember the Galatian heresy? <clears throat> if I said uh, uh, the Judaizers came and they taught that Christians had to be circumcised, does that ring a bell? So that was a big deal. That's the Galatian heresy. That's going on in Galatia. So the Judaizers were come in and uh, they came in and they said, everybody has got to be circumcised in order to really be redeemed. If you're a Christian, if you, if you really trust this Jesus, you have to be circumcised to prove it. So these Gentile men, who were not Jewish from birth, they're Gentiles. Middle-aged Gentile men who are coming to faith in Christ, they're laying this heavy burden on them to say, you've got to also be circumcised to be part of the body, to be truly redeemed. And Paul argues against that even here in Colossians. In verse 11, he says, Here there is no Greek nor Jew, uh, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. So your circumcision means nothing to your redemption. Circumcision of the heart, you bet. But your circumcision of the flesh means nothing to your redemption. Jesus is all. Jesus is everything. And, and, and if Jesus is all, then since you have been raised with him, verse 1, seek those things that are above. Therefore, verse 5, which is to say, because you have been raised with Christ and because Christ is all and in, and, and in all, these things shouldn't be found among you. Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desires, and so on. That's not what Christianity looks like. That's not what a life that has, been, that has been raised with Christ looks like. And then verse 12, which he says, And then, that's to say, Therefore also, because you've been raised in Christ, because Christ is all in all, these things should be found in you. So this shouldn't be, and this should be. You should be characterized by what we see in verse 12, which is kindness and humility true humility, not that external showy stuff we talked about earlier, not asceticism, not look at me, fake kind of humility, but true humility, meekness, patience, verse 13, forgiveness, verse 14, love, verse 15, peace and thankfulness, all of those things that Paul tells us to put off and then he tells us to put these things on, these are heart matters. So they, they speak to the, the very desires and proclivities of our hearts, which leads me to wonder, is disordered desire that is accepted sinful? And I would say, based on what Paul is saying, that these things shouldn't be found in your heart, that it is. And so when I want things that I shouldn't want, whether I go after them or not, I should repent for the want. Let me put it in terms of sexual immorality for you. Everyone can, everyone can get it. So if I, if I see a, a woman, and she's lovely, shapely to be desired, and I want her, but I don't do anything about it, I should repent for the want. Amen. Amen. 
She's not my wife. I've been given one. These are matters of the heart. Did not Jesus say, if you look at a woman that lusts after her, you've already committed adultery with her? So what, what does that mean? I mean, that, what is lust but want? That's a disordered desire. So is the desire then sinful? Yeah, sure. And I should be repentant for that sinful, disordered desire. If I'm, if I'm always angry, if I'm always angry about everything, that's a problem with my Christian walk. There's a problem. Especially when the Bible teaches us that the Christian life is, is ordered by joy. The joy of the Lord and strengthened by joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. If I'm unwilling to forgive because your offense is just so egregious against me, that's a problem with my Christian walk. On the other hand, if I claim to have visions, and I live like I don't have any money, and I just put everything away and deny myself all kinds of, of joys, that is no indication of the strength or even the presence of a Christian walk in my life. So, so why these things? Why, why, what, is it, what is the basis of Paul's argument here? That our lives ought to be characterized by compassion, kindness, Humility, forgiveness, and so on, and, and not things like anger and wrath and malice and sexual morality. Well, well that's, that's verse 1. You have been raised with Christ. That's the basis. You have been raised with Christ. With Him. Not, not, with, not with Satan. Not with, with His devils. Not with the world. Not with anything else. You have been raised with Christ. More specifically, verse 3, you died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. Amen. Your life is not an earthly life anymore. I was talking about this with Brother Dove this morning. The already not yet. We have, we, have been, we have been washed. We have been clean. We have been set free. We have been crucified with Christ. Our life is not an earthly life anymore. We are hidden with God. You have a heavenly life that is kept safe with Christ. And even more to the point, the reward for that, verse 4, is that when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Amen. So therefore, don't be bound, Paul says. Don't be captive to these earthly things. Here's where we come to my second goal, the how. hope that categorizes or helps you put into categories that, that first list of the don't worry about the rules and the second list about these matters of the heart that are characteristic of a Christian life and the ones that are not. So here's where we come to the how, the means. How do we put this stuff on? How do we take these things off? It's interesting that Paul tells us that we have to put these things that are earthly down and that we must put on these heavenly things. He puts that on us. Do you see that in the text? He says, therefore, put to death. You put to death. That's the implied, you put to death. You put on. To lay down sinfulness, take up righteousness. 
It's like me telling my daughter, okay, you leave Jackson, Tennessee, and go to Lynchburg, Virginia. Well, that, there's a whole lot of in-between there. There's a few hundred miles of in-between there. There's about nine hours of in-between there. I've got to give her a way to manage the in-between in order for her to get from here to there. That's sort of like the Bible's doctrine of progressive sanctification. You may not have heard that word before, but that's, that's what we believe, that we are progressively sanctified. Amen. You're progressively made more and more like Christ in our walk with Him. It's a, it's a process. There, there's an immediate change in the new man. Amen. Once we surrender to Jesus as Lord, you, you bet there is an, an immediate change. Old things have passed away. All things have become new. My desires change. The, you know, I, I don't love sin anymore. I, I love righteousness, and I want to get rid of, of sin. I want to, as Paul says, put it to death. I want to mortify the deeds of the flesh. But... We still have to battle that old man from now until that great and final day when Christ comes in victory. From now until we take our last breath and he raises us again in glory. So, yes, so we, yes, we are changed and yes, we still have to go to war. Paul says, Look, you, you aren't that old person anymore. That ain't you anymore. You have died and your life is hidden. With Christ. You're not that old person anymore. Jesus was crucified for sin. So crucify your sin. So the question then becomes how? How do I go from sexual immorality, anger and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk and all the things that, you know, that Paul says put to death? How do I go from that to compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and so on? That's verse 1 and 2. Paul says, seek the things that are above. So the the things that have to do with Christ. And then in verse 2, he says, set your mind on things above, not things on earth. Set your mind on things above. Set your mind, and this is what made this click for me, as, ah, I see what you're getting at. This is the power. This is the means. Literally translated, it means concentrate. Concentrate on things that are above. Don't concentrate on things that are of earth. Concentrate on heavenly, Christ-wrought, righteousness-producing things, not on earthly, old man, sin-producing things. So let me see if I can give you a a personal example as a a way of application, okay? So a couple years ago, someone I've known for a very long time came up to me and he just laid into me. I mean, in front of other people, just laid into me. It was out of the blue. It was embarrassing. It was offensive. It was in a very stressful time. It was completely uncalled for. Literally no excuse for this kind of behavior. None. 
I mean, he, he tore into me. He was so erratic and irrational, I actually thought he was going to hit me. I stood there, and I took it. I didn't argue back, but I didn't back down either. You know what I mean? Um, I, I, I didn't want him to think that that behavior was, well, just walk all over me, buddy. I didn't want him to think that, that it's okay to do that. Um, but at the same time, I, you know, I love this guy, and I, I don't know what is, what's going on with him, right? It was extremely offensive. My feelings were hurt. My pride was hurt. And there, there's just so much I wanted to say in that moment, but I, I didn't say it because I didn't want to make things worse. So I, I took it. I took the abuse. And so now here we are a couple of years later. He's apologized, and I will add in his own way, um, but don't you know, <laughs> don't you know that when I see him, that situation comes up in my memory. Amen. And I'm confronted with it again. And again. Amen. Amen. And again the next time. Amen. And again the next time. Amen. And truth be told, because I'm human, I will probably continue to be confronted with that memory until they put me in the grave. Every time I see him. Now, I speak from experience here when I say that if I allow myself to concentrate on that memory, you know, I can play that thing back in my head, that scenario a thousand different ways and think about all the things that were wrongfully said and wrongfully done to attack me and, and sinfully done to attack me. I can think about all the things that I, I you know, wanted to say and could have said and and just yeah, get that knife in there, and I can get angry about it all over again. And what that does, concentrating on earthly things now, what that does is cause me to be angry. <laughs> Put that away. Causes me to uh, want to act in wrath. Put that away. It causes me to think about things with malice. Put that away causes me not to want to forgive. I can tell you it causes me not to want to forgive. Paul says, put that away. But instead, if I concentrate not on that memory, I mean, it's there. I know it happened. I can't change that, right? But if I concentrate on the work of Christ, Not, not just for me, but also for him. Listen, that, that's not a cliche. I'm not pulling that out of the... I'm not just trying to put on you platitudes. And say, well, just trust in Jesus. Paul is giving us some real strategy here. Real strategy. This is real strategy that I can tell you works in my personal life. If I concentrate on the, on the finished work of Christ, what He did for me, what He has forgiven me of, and what He has rescued me from. Let me tell you, I think about that, what He's forgiven me of, what He's rescued me from, and that starts me to thinking about what He's rescued me to. Amen. Amen. Whew, man, <laughs> I know what I've been rescued from. And thank God, thank you Jesus for that, for rescuing me and pulling me out of all that. But now I've been pulled out of all that. I know what you pulled me into. I know where I'm going, and I don't want to give that up for nothing. Amen. I don't want to get no offense, 
No, no hurt pride, no revenge, nothing. I don't want to give it up for nothing. So I concentrate on things that are above yes. Yes. with Christ. I was talking to my wife one day about, about you know, struggling with those kinds of memories that come up. And it, it, just, comes, and it just makes that stuff well up within you. Amen. you know? Amen. And one of the wisest things my wife ever said, she said, just don't think about it. I thought, it's that easy, isn't it? But it is. <laughs> but, I mean, it's, it's not going to stop it from coming up. But what a weapon it is against the, the anger and the wrath and the malice and all that stuff that comes with it. Amen. And instead, don't think about it. Instead, concentrate on Christ. Oh, what you've done for me. Who am I to be upset at this guy for being just acting like a sinner? The same guy I was. So now, now where does that move me to? Compassion. That moves me to humility. I mean, I, I'm just, I'm no better off than he was without Christ. That's humble. That's real humility. <clears throat> Tony Ranke, who is a contemporary Christian author, he wrote this, and I, I thought it matched up well with uh, the fuel that Paul is giving us here. And so I wanted to leave you with this, this statement. He says, what our eyes linger on, so translate that, what we concentrate on, our hearts will learn to love. And what our hearts learn to love, our eyes will linger on. The more I concentrate on Christ, the more I love Him. The more I love Him, the more I just see Him everywhere. When by supernatural grace, Christ becomes the highest prize in our life, then He becomes the supreme focus of our attention. Set your minds on things above. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I come to you in the name of Jesus. Your word is good and it is encouraging. It is convicting. But Father, I, I thank you that you don't just leave us in our, in our conviction, but you give us a way out. And you've given us a way out in Christ. Father, help us as we go from here to, to focus on you, to have our eyes set on you to set our sights on the mark of the prize of the high calling we've been given in Christ, to see him, to savor him, to love him, so that we can be for others that love, that light, and that salt that you've called us to be, and not, not uh, characterized by malice and anger and hatred and, and immorality, but, Father, seeking you in humility and, and forgiveness and patience and peace and with joyfulness and thanksgiving. Father, we love you and we thank you once again. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.